Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychiatrist talks about the significant increase in suicides. There's been a lot of research into suicide and what what some of the factors are, and those can really be lumped into three big categories. One is overwhelming stressors, and then mental disorders and substance use disorders. A pair of urologists discuss their research into why so many women awaken during the night to urinate. So when looking at other medical issues that were associated with nocturia, we found three factors that stood out, uh, one of them being depression, hypertension, and then also arthritis. And a professor talks about living in a digital world. We don't single task anymore. I mean, in the work that you do, you're, you're planning an interview, but you may also be thinking, I, I need to talk to this and that person. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll discuss some of the reasons women awaken during the night to urinate. Then we'll talk about what's good and bad about living in a digital world. But first, why are more people, including children and adolescents, committing suicide? Suicide rates in the United States are on the rise for the first time in decades, going up 25% from 1999 to 2016. The increase is seen across different regions of the country, among different age groups, genders, and ethnicities, and especially among youth and people who are middle-aged. So what is going on? We have Dr. Robert Gregory with us to help explain. He's a psychiatrist and the director of Upstate's Psychiatry High-Risk Program. Welcome, Dr. Gregory. Oh, thank you. So the, the rise in suicide rates, are we seeing this locally in central New York as well? Yes, we are. I, I'd have to say it's a crisis both locally and nationally. Um, not only rising suicide rates, uh, rising rates of mental disorders, people coming to the emergency rooms, really in distress, uh, on their last leg. Um, really, suicide is a last resort for people, and yet we're seeing it increase. So it's, it's very alarming, very concerning seeing massive rises in people coming for mental health issues to, um, to upstate, for sure. Uh, we've seen a five-fold increase in psychiatric consultations just in the last five years, and a, an amazing tenfold increase in children and adolescents coming in with suicidal um, thoughts or behaviors. Just in the last three years, a tenfold increase, just, just astounding statistics. Uh, there's a shortage of child beds across the state, too, so those kids are staying an average of five days at University Hospital before they can find a psychiatric bed somewhere. Wow. Well, the obvious question is, what's going on? Why are so many people in such distress? And it, maybe it's a different answer for adult versus child, but... It might be, and there's a lot we don't understand about this, um, there are some. There's been a lot of research into suicide and what what some of the factors are, and and those can really be lumped into three big categories. One is overwhelming stressors, for instance, severe medical illness or socioeconomic stresses, uh, loss of a job, loss of an important loved one, uh, whether it's a spouse or a grandparent or family member. Those are probably the most common link. Uh, stressor, and then um, uh, mental disorders and substance use disorders. And of course, a stress can lead to mental disorders and substance use disorders. But we know that most people who attempt or complete suicide have had a mental disorder, very often undiagnosed. And then the third important factor we know is uh, connectedness, social connectedness with other people. Do they have a support network? of people who they're close to? Do they spend enough quality time with those people? And that's something I believe in the US we are um, we're losing track of. Uh, many factors to that, many times people have two jobs to keep ends, make ends meet, 
and um, there may not be enough time even during week to to socialize. And then social media, interestingly, seems to lead to diminished social connectedness rather than greater social connectedness. So it's a bit of a paradox, but social media is actually has the more time spent on social media has been found to correlate with increased rates of mental disorders and substance use disorders and increased risk for suicide. Wow, that is a paradox because you think social connectedness, you know, who's who's not socially connected on social media, but you're right, a lot of times that's done in isolation. Yeah, so it's 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 remarkable. I, in fact, I, a memory comes to mind of my daughter and her best friend in the back seat and instead of talking with one another, they were texting to friends and one another. And, um, and then they're, they're always, uh, as teens, they look to social media for self-definition and self-esteem. And they're wondering if something they said was liked or disliked. And it becomes a form very often for bullying mm-hmm. and uh, social ostracism instead of social connectedness. So when you, you mentioned, you know, mental disorders or substance use, those things in and of themselves, does there have to be something else on top of that to push toward a suicide plan? Or Yeah, the all three factors coming together okay. for certain. Um, there is an inherited risk for suicide as well and for mental disorders. And if the mental disorder or substance use disorder goes untreated, and which can internally to increase isolation as people just lose interest in social contacts or start becoming very anxious around social contacts. Uh, so one of those factors can actually lead to other, the other factors, and it can become a vicious circle. Wow. Now, I read somewhere that suicide by firearms um, is prevalent, like more than half. Yes, firearms consistently has been... Uh, the most common form of suicide. Um, Overdoses used to be second. I think uh, actually hanging or suffocation is now, sorry to go into these gruesome details, but but still access to firearms is maybe the single most preventable um, thing that we can do as family or community. If you see, if there is someone at risk, just make sure they don't have access to firearms. Oh, that's a good point. Well, let me ask you, how is Central New York equipped to handle this crisis? Well, I think that's, you know, that's a great question. Um, There's a lot more that can be done, of course. Um, I think, well, one thing I want to say is there is effective treatment. Treatment can be hugely effective for suicide and suicide prevention. Uh, There is a difficult access to treatment, and because of the difficult access of getting into high-quality outpatient treatment, our emergency rooms have just been flooded with people, and often with nowhere to send them. Uh, And really, insurance rates, Medicaid and Medicare, and private insurance rates are all abysmally low for uh, psychotherapy reimbursement, and psychotherapy itself has become diluted, diluted so that um, very often we call it counseling, and we know a lot of counseling is more like chatting, and which is helpful for connectedness, but may not be helpful for uh, recovering from mental disorder. Now, uh, I know Upstate has an addiction psychiatry program, Mm -hmm. Um, and then you, of course, oversee the psychiatry high-risk program. What can you tell us about how that works? Yeah, well, Upstate has made huge efforts to try to address this mental health crisis. They've uh, hired new providers in our our university clinics to try to... um, try to increase access. Uh, It's still an overwhelming demand. And also setting up these specialty programs. So addiction psychiatry was established several years ago, but now we're increasing number of providers in that program. Uh, And then the high-risk program was set up about a year ago in response to a uh, the Youth Mental Health Task Force uh, run by Congressman Katko and Assemblyman Magnarelli, 
And one of the recommendations of that task force was to set up specialty clinics for suicide prevention um, that specialize in that. And so we set one up at Upstate, and uh, we've been able, fortunately, to partner with some major in insurers, including uh, Excellus, Fidelis, and Molina, to have reimbursement rates that make this program potentially sustainable. So we are actually at a point now where uh, we're hiring a second therapist. Uh, these are highly trained uh, therapists. We carefully monitor outcomes. Uh, we provide free psychological testing. And our outcomes so far have been extremely encouraging, So, especially for patients who stick with it. Well, let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Robert Gregory. Um, he's a psychiatrist who directs Upstate's Psychiatry High-Risk Program. And I want to be sure to give the phone number for that for people to get more information about it, 315-464-3117. And we'll also have that on our website. Um, we've seen some high-profile suicides recently with Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, who from the outside, people might uh, think they have, you know, everything going for them. So mm. does it seem to you like these are examples of, you know, some problems that even, you know, fame and fortune can't fix? Yeah, suicide uh, is blind to fame and fortune. And, um, and you know, I, I think these two deaths are tragic. Um I, I think it's important not to over pay over attention to them because there is a risk for copycat suicide that's actually well-established um, media phenomenon. And, and frankly, there are 45,000 other people in the U.S. who die of suicide every year, 45,000 other. And so I, I don't want to glorify the two celebrities because these other people are really just as important. Sure. But, you know, at least these tragic deaths have brought this epidemic uh, into, into the national spotlight where it really needs to be so we can take more positive action towards preventing this very preventable problem. Well, let me ask you, what, what can a person do if they know of a loved one or a friend who they I mean, how do you tell if they're at risk for suicide? Yeah, that's a great question. So you have to, you, you have to first of all, be able to ask the question. And you, you monitor, there are things that you can look for. So we talked about social connectedness being a pr protective factor. And what you see leading up to suicide is uh, usually people will withdraw socially. And they may start losing their ability to function either at school or work. You might have dropping grades. Um, you might have people who are going in late to work with either being fired or threatening to be fired. Um, there are going to be more strained relationships. And the person is usually more negative. So kind of the glass half empty <laughs> kind of conversations when any issue is being raised, it's you know, real pessimistic kind of outlook on things. And uh, so if there's a change like that from baseline, you know this person's hurting and in trouble and may or may not be at risk for suicide at that point. But if you don't ask the question, you're not going to know. Now that's, it's easy to say, oh, just ask the person, you know, are you having suicide th thoughts about suicide lately? Um, very hard to actually do. Um, it's because of partly because of social stigma. You don't want to maybe insult the person by asking a question. Other people are concerned. They'll put the idea into the person's head. What we know, though, from research is that it doesn't put the thoughts into someone's head. It actually is protective if someone asks about it. You're actually diminishing the risk of suicide by asking about it. And once you know that they are struggling, um, you're in a much better position to help and intervene and have the person open up. Uh, so getting them connected um, and talking to someone 
uh, trying to evaluate the seriousness. You know, how um, have you ever tried to do something to hurt yourself? How close have you come lately is one of, I think, one of the best questions. And do you think you might actually carry out those thoughts? Uh, so those are all questions you can ask. And certainly if you're concerned, um, really get that person help immediately. Well, if someone does say and confesses, yes, I have been thinking about suicide, you know, what then? What do you do to help them then? I mean, it would be frightening to even leave their side if, yeah, if someone no, said absolutely. that. Yeah, so. absolutely. And that's really what our emergency rooms and CPAP are for. If someone's at imminent risk, they need to be evaluated and may even need to be hospitalized. At least evaluated, though, and by professional who can determine risk. Um, and that way, and that way, um, you know the person. At, at least you know the person's going to be safe. Um, there are other resources. Sometimes it can be hard for someone to go to, into an emergency room or CPAP. And there are hotlines that people can call, like Contact, and I think that's a great number for a family member to call. Contact Community Services? Exactly. Because that's a locally... Exactly, uh, Contact Community Services. There's also a National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, You can Google both of those, and so the numbers are really super easy to find. And the advantage of Contact is that they know the local resources and can help both evaluate suicide risk as well as um, suggest outpatient clinics or therapists who might have openings that the person can see. What's the outlook for someone who's contemplating suicide? Do do people come back from that brink? Do you see that happen? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. The vast majority of people who contemplate suicide do not end up completing it. Uh, in fact, um, we know 9% of high school students contemplate suicide in a given year. So this is a pretty common phenomenon. Um, however, if it's not addressed, the risk of completing suicide goes greatly up. So you really want to catch it at an early phase before it escalates and people become more depressed, more isolated. And as they become more depressed and isolated, they start losing friends, they start having more problems in the, at school or the workplace. And so you want to catch that before it turns into that vicious circle of escalating problems. Wow. Well, thank you. This is very good information on a very important topic. I appreciate you being here. My, my pleasure. My guest has been psychiatrist Dr. Robert Gregory, director of the Upstate Psychiatry High Risk Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next up, how many times do you get up at night to use the bathroom? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. How many times do you awaken in the middle of the night to use the bathroom? Today in the HealthLink studio, we have two urologists, and we're going to talk with them about what's normal and what they've found in their research into women and what they call nocturia. This is something that affects up to 70% of women, so I'm interested to hear more from Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Mickey Doherty. Dr. Byler is an assistant professor of urology, and Dr. Doherty is his chief resident. So thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thank you. The um, medical term nocturia, what's the definition of that? Nocturia simply means that you awaken in the night to go to the bathroom. Uh, it does encompass bedwetting, but generally when we refer to it, we're not talking about bedwetting. We're talking about uh, going to the bathroom. So and it's normal for your body to awaken you for something like that, right? Yes. So, um, But if it does it too many times or too often, it can become a problem. Yes. I suppose. 
So um, your research focused on women. Um, is that because more women are affected? Or wh why did you choose women instead of men? We chose women because uh, everyone uh, knows that men have prostate concerns, and this often leads to getting up at night or nocturia. Uh, but there's not as much focus on women. So we wanted to look at the U.S. population and see if women were being affected as much as men. So can you tell us what some of the reasons uh, that a woman might have to be awakened to use the bathroom in the, in the middle of the night? What are some of the causes of that? So a lot of, uh, there are many different causes for nocturia in women, actually for anyone uh, in general. Most times it's uh, systemic diseases, uh, not necessarily related to just the bladder. It can be things like diabetes, um, heart disease like heart failure, even sleep apnea, they can wake up uh, for other reasons than urinate at that point too. Uh, if people have fluid overload or too much uh, fluid on them, they can also urinate at night because when they lay down, the fluid shifts and they have to make, they make more urine that they ne than have to pee. Huh. So I wouldn't necessarily think, I would have thought maybe it had, does it have anything to do with like bladder size or anything like that? It can be related to bladder size or how well the bladder works, but a lot of times nocturia, unlike some other urinary issues, are actually mostly unrelated to the bladder itself. It's due to other issues for over the entire body. Interesting. All right, well, I'd like to hear about how this um, study got started. Um, what, how, did you, how did you do it? What did you pull together to, to do this? Uh, well, the Boston Area Community Health Study w was published in 2007, and we were reviewing that, and we noticed that it mentioned about 28 million U.S. adults were affected in their study with what they considered significant nocturia, or getting up at least twice per night. Um, so we wanted to look at another population and see if this was uh, affected at also U.S. females and whether it was persistent, since this was, study was uh, you know over 10 years old now. Um, in their study, they showed that uh, getting up at night related to almost $61 million lost because of productivity at work, uh, that patients were more tired and were not able to perform as well, um, and that the average patient waited over two years before coming to the doctor to even discuss anything about peeing at night. Um, so we wanted to look at some of this uh, U.S. population uh, level data and just see if uh, it had persisted with time. So sleep disruption is a, is a major problem for people. I mean, this causes sleep disruption, which causes all of the, like you meant the ripple effects of having trouble staying awake at work or whatever. Exactly. So before you looked at your data, did you have a theory? Did you think that there would be uh, something? Were you looking for something specific? You know, honestly, we weren't sure what we were going to find exactly. We, we knew that... Uh, the population in general had, uh, they got up at night a lot, um, but we weren't sure how females would respond, would respond to that or report that, and we weren't sure uh, how that would compare with their male counterparts. Um, certainly, we, there has been publications on male um, getting up at night that's shown high rates, especially increasing with age. So the question was whether women would show the same trend. Okay. So did you create a survey, or how did that... Dr. So to, to look at this, we uh, utilize the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. It's also called NHANES for short. Uh, it's a program that's actually run by the CDC um, and it goes around and surveys various people throughout the United States. And through their survey design is uh, used as an estimate of the national population and the estimated rates for the entire U.S. population as a whole. So we combined several years of their data where they looked at all different uh, women across the country um, and looked at their response to rates of how many times they urinate at night. Huh. Okay, so the, the data was sort of already there. You just had to pull it. Um, yes. So what how many women or how many respondents and what were the age breakdown? So for the, the information regarding uh, Nocturia, we had over 7,000 women that responded to the survey. Um, so this... Uh, large amount of, of women encompassed all ages. It was anyone that is 20 years or older. Um, the, so we were from 20s up into the 80s as well. So we kind of encompassed all uh, ages of women. And with that many, that's a, that's a big number. So this is a pretty valid look, really. And through, the way, and through the way that they do their surveying, these over 7,000 women are supposed to estimate close to about 40 million women in the United States. Did you find any other um, anything interesting in in your study of women? So, when looking at other 
medical issues that were associated with Nocturia, we found three other factors that stood out, uh, one of them being depression, hypertension, and then also arthritis. I think depression uh, is an is a important thing to notice because it's not necessarily that a patient is depressed because they have Nocturia. Sometimes the Nocturia can be the initial sign of depression is almost like a screening uh, oh, really? factor for it. Huh. So it's your mind kind of working at, at night and waking you up? and huh. it, it could be that. Sometimes people, when they have depression, have worse sleep or get up earlier, so their sleep patterns are changed, and they can get up when huh. they wake up because their sleep pattern is not working as well, so they urinate then. Um, what about, you said hypertension, high blood pressure? So I think that correlates probably with just the general medical issues for a person. So it's that was shown that whether it even is a blood pressure medication that they're being treated with, it might cause them to make more urine to try and help with their blood pressure that could cause it, or if it's just their systemic issues as a whole causing it to. Now, they also may be on medication for um, yes. high blood pressure. Does that sometimes other medicines might impact? We couldn't look at medications specifically in this study just by the design of it. Uh, but that might be what we're seeing as hypertension uh, is medical therapy of it, which can certainly lead to fluid loss and urination at night. And then arthritis as well? So arthritis actually has been shown in previous NHANES uh, studies to be associated with higher mortality overall. So it's a systemic issue that's been shown to have issues with a, how well a person will do. So that's something that we included to see how that might relate to it. That's just what patients say they have arthritis in some way, whether well, it's also going with something wrong with their body as a whole, causing maybe these issues with nocturia. Interesting. Well, I want to hear more about some of the findings, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with two Upstate urologists, Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Mickey Doherty. Um, now, what are some of the things that you looked at with these women? Did you look at obstetrical uh, factors or whether they were mothers or not? So we, we looked at a lot of different uh, factors. We first started with just the overall rate among women and how many times they would get up to urinate in a given night. Uh, we found about 70% of women at least urinate one time or more per night. We then kind of went further to then look at what, they, what we were talking about before with significant nocturia. They found that if those that urinate two or more times per night there's have a higher bother associated with this and a more effect on their quality of life. Um, so looking at that, that was in, in about 30% of women had significant nocturia, as you would call it. Wow. So everyone gets up at least once, and some, some get up twice, yes. basically. Yes, twice or more, oh. and that has an, a large effect on their quality of life. Did uh, childbearing have any impact, or did you look at that? So when you look at all uh, the different factors of childbirth, even number of deliveries they've had, um, there was no difference in if they've had multiple kids or even without uh, having no kids, they actually had no difference in their nocturia rates. What a, did age have anything to do so with it? Age was probably one of the bigger factors. As the women uh, got older, they had much higher rates of nocturia. The youngest women, uh, the 20 to 29 year olds, had about a 40% rate of any nocturia. And those that are 80 or older, more than 80% of them had so it does. Nocturia. It's very Definitely. strongly correlated with age. So do you think it's there like some structural changes as you age or, or does tissue change in a way that makes you have to get up more often? Or? It's, it's hard to say uh, from this. Uh, it's likely related to as people age, they have a lot of other medical problems that those other problems combined have a higher rate of nocturia and those would play more of a role than necessarily structural changes, more of just the system the whole body having issues. Yes. Was was there anything that surprised you in these findings, Dr. Byler? Uh, yes, actually. we were, As I alluded to, we were talking about gender. We weren't sure how the male and females would compare to each other. And actually, uh, the females were more had more report than the males. Um, huh. So when we compared the, to the same group of males, the same survey of males, uh, males were about 62% reporting um, peeing at night versus the females, which was 70%. Uh, and when we looked at each group of uh, how many times they went to the bathroom, whether it was zero, one, two, almost every category, females were more. Uh, so it's certainly not a problem that's biased towards men. It's a, a problem that may actually have some, some bias to female. Uh, was there a, a difference in, among the races, or did you look at it that way? 
Uh, actually, yes. When we when we analyzed uh, the women only, so that that was the only time we looked at men was in the comparison. But and generally, we were looking at women. Um, yes, uh, African American did have an increased rate uh, of uh, urination at night uh, relative to uh, the other races. What about uh, weight? Yes. So we we looked at a number of factors, and uh, the ones that stood out were age, which we we discussed, um, race. Um, weight uh, with a BMI over 30. Uh, and then when the patients reported uh, that they had uh, urgency-related leakage, uh, that also raised their risk. Uh, in this survey, they also had a um, self-report of health status, how healthy the patient felt at the time of the survey, and that strongly correlated with um, their rates of urination at night. So when you, you mentioned the urge-related leakage or incontinence, is that like during the daytime? Yes. So if you have that going on, you're more likely to, yes. need to get up in the middle of the night? Yes. Okay. Uh, interestingly, um, we found two protective factors uh, in the data. So um, education status and income status were protective against uh, peeing at night. So those that had higher incomes or higher educations uh, were reported less urination at night. I wonder, is that, does that just go toward maybe you're healthier if you have? I, you know, from this we cannot make a direct conclusion, uh, but certainly it could be healthier, it could be access to health care, it could be a, you know, a lot of factors. Wow. Well, while I have you both here, um, I know that you, you know, looked at data and did this research, but you also see patients that have problems like this. So I wanted to ask you, earlier you mentioned um, people tend to wait a couple of years with this issue before bringing it to a doctor. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think there's a cultural and societal bias that it's sort of normal, you know, I'm, uh, it's, it's, I'm 60, I should get up at night more than I did when I was 40. Um, but that does not mean that it's not bothering the older person more than, you know, than they need to, it could be treated and prevent that, uh, prevent that health uh, bother and loss of sleep. Is it something, if a listener is uh, getting up two times a night or more, is it something to mention at your next doctor visit? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the, the really our, our take-home message is that it's, it's not uncommon to have this problem, so you're not alone. Uh, and that um, if you're having that problem, you should mention it because a lot of physicians don't ask routinely, especially women, about urination at night. So... Uh, Unless you bring it up, no one knows it's a problem for you. Okay. Well, could it, do you ever see where it's just someone's gotten into that habit? That it's, um, it's just a habit? There's not any medical underlying thing? They've just kind of conditioned themselves? Or perhaps their husband gets up, so it wakes them up, so they go. Certainly. <laughs> there's lots of factors that go into it. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think it's, the, it's our, our job to kind of make sure that the, the, this is not the first sign of diabetes. This is not the first sign of heart disease, things that oh. could give it. Um, and maybe this is just the first symptom that's emerging. Uh, and, you know, a lot of that is done at the primary care level, honestly. Um, but, you know, the primary cares are asking about so many different things that they may not ask about uh, peeing at night. So it's up to you to bring it up and make sure that they know that this is an issue for you. All right. So if someone brings it up and, um, you know, with their physician and, and they end up getting sent to a urologist, are there treatments for this? So it depends on probably the cause of what the nocturia is, which you have to elicit uh, different history from the patient and see what other factors they might have that could play a role in it. Um, there can be, like you said, if it's a fluid status, you can do fluid restriction at night. They also have medications that you can get at night that can make you have, they can make you make less urine, so it could be less of an issue. Um, if people though urinate several times a night and are not bothered by it, it doesn't necessarily warrant being treated either. Um, so it just depends on when talking to a, a person to see what cause, what they have that might cause them to urinate more at night to see what you need to do to possibly improve it. Neat. Well, I want to thank you both for being here. This is a very interesting topic. Um, I appreciate the information. My guests have been Dr. Timothy Byler and Dr. Mickey Doherty. They're urologists at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
coming up next, the best way to be a resident of the digital world on HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Today we're talking about living in a digital world with a professor who teaches at both Lemoyne College, the Madden School of Business, and Syracuse University in the Newhouse School of Public Communications. Renee Downey Hart has expertise in communications management and performance in the internet age. So uh, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's great to be here. Uh, this digital world, is there any way to avoid it? <laughs> I, I, unless you've got an island somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you can unplug everything, I don't think there is. And I'm not sure that we really want to. I don't think most of us want to go back to the days before we could track our teenagers at 11 o'clock at night or get a quick text on a late meeting. There's a lot of it that's wonderful. But it's a tool. It's not to supplant human interaction. And I think that's where we get tripped up. So what, is dig- what do you mean by digital? Digital is all the platforms that we use, all the media that we use, from our our phones to our computers to our laptops to our tablets, televisions, radios. Anything that comes out from elsewhere to us is is this digital piece. Anything that needs to be charged at night? Well, (laughs) most of of them do, don't they? It seems like. (laughs) Most of them. Now, um, so it seems like, I mean, in this day and age, we're sort of forced to live at least some of our lives online, right? Yeah. There's wonderful research on the Pew Charitable Pew Charitable Trust website that does a lot of research on this. And 88% of people think that the internet is good for us, 88% of all Americans, but but only about 70% feel that it has a great overall value. Because along with this connectivity that we have, there are caveats, and I'm not sure that we saw those coming. I also find, and as we continue the conversation, I'd like to talk about how sometimes we know technology can do something, but is it good for the human piece of us. Just because and it can do it. that's the balance, yeah. Because we have tech, should we be using the tech? Um, it, for me, the, the, you know, the upsides are this amazing connectivity. I think it's wonderful. One of, my, one of my Lemoyne students texted me last night at 8 o'clock with a question about a paper that was due. I could send her back a text in 15 seconds and we're done. Nobody has to go to email and open it. So the, the urgency of that is wonderful. But we have to be careful that not everything becomes urgent and not everything becomes instant. And that's the world that we're in right now. So have we lost some things by moving to digital? Are there things that we've left behind? That- sure, sure. I mean, I, I think about it. I've, I've been interested in this for a long, long time. I was thinking about this, you know, before I had my first um, phone, dig- uh, cell phone. There was a time when, after dinner, what would families do? They'd go out on the front porch in their towns, and they'd connect with their neighbors, and their kids would play on the lawns together and so on. And we had this really wonderful social connectivity that was very organic. We went to um, meetings and events and things that, that you know, took us offline and, 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 and kept us in, um, you know, connecting with one another in social and business settings. Enter this digital age, and we've kind of gone indoors. This actually started before the digital age, stopping the front porches and so on. And we live in the town to talk about that. Willis Carrier's invention of air conditioning took us from the front porches into our living rooms. And, you know, early 50s, here comes television and so on, which kind of brings us inside even more. But human beings want fellowship. We have a basic human need for one another. Granted, there are hermits in the world, but there aren't very many. And by the way, they're really hard to find a survey, just for the record. <laughs> but, but for most of us, that social peace is an innate human need somewhere along the line. And we have decided to supplant that with going down to our basement to our computers and saying, this is, this is my social peace. And I'm not sure it's giving us all that we really need. Well, which generation, birth years, um, which generation do you think is most comfortable and this is most natural for living online? I'm a baby boomer. And so I had to learn that first computer that sat on my desk and I missed my Selectric. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners, that's going to resonate for them, right? And then we get into Generation X, which are the people that were born from uh, 65 to 81. And that generation is saying, you know, they're kind of making this transition into digital. But now we have millennials, and and these people are digital natives. And by the way, millennials are now 
between the ages of early 20s and late 30s. So as we talk about millennials, I think a lot of us still think of seeing, you know, that student at Lemoyne walking around campus with their phone in their hand. But truly, millennials are all the way up into the late 30s now. They're vice presidents, they're directors, they're running the world. And I think we have to stop seeing them as somebody that just arrives from another planet that somebody else raised. Millennials are part of the fabric of us now. But they are digital natives, and they're driving a lot of this. They're driving us um, virtual meetings and, and you know companies that will have uh, a meeting now with Zoom technology or Meetup as opposed to face-to-face. And although the technology is a wonderful thing, and it does link us beautifully, it still doesn't give us that human nuance that you and I have right now sitting in the same room, that eye contact, that level of, of you know, the human piece. There is a researcher out of Harvard named Edward Hallowell, H-A-L-L-O-W-E-L-L, and he talks about human moments. And he, most of business, really what any of us do, has to do with connecting with other people. And Hallowell says that human moments require an emotional presence and a physical presence in a room with one another. Digital lets us get rid of the physical presence, and we lose a lot. We know with our communication classes from, from forever that it's, it's the nuance of the voice. It's the, it's the physical motion of the person you're with. And that human moment thing is what makes us who we are. And make no mistake, I love my technology. I love my tablet and my phone and all things. I do, I love it. But there's a time to say, you know, what is this? What is this? And it's a tool. It's not the whole of who we are. Well, I saw an estimate that um, 4.1 billion text messages are sent each day. And so, you know, we can be in touch with one another constantly, basically. Um, do you see that as a positive or a negative? I, I think what I see it as is fascinating. You know, I use this quote when I when I start talking about this in a lecture from Socrates, who talked about how, you know, this next generation is going to heck in a handbasket. What are they? You know, this is Socrates thousands of years ago, right? And we're still kind of doing that. So for me, um, I, I think that it's it's the beauty of being able to connect that we need to embrace. Okay. Well, um, let me ask you this. What is the constant connection doing to our attention spans? Yes. Yeah, that's that's pretty um, amazing, actually. The average American attention span right now is a very few minutes. And part of that, there was seven minutes for a long time, and part of that was television that gave us a break every seven minutes to do their commercials. Oh. Your subconscious is living and breathing there, right, saying, oh, I'm going to take a break now. So our attention span has been getting briefer and briefer. Now when you look at this next generation coming up, and no one has quite named them yet. I'm hearing Generation I, Small I, Generation Z. Um, this generation coming up, they're talking about it in terms of seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, until something zips or blips or needs to be looked at or you need to check another screen. Every one of us has been in a hallway at our workplaces having a conversation with somebody when the other phone went off and you reach for it. And it becomes okay to interrupt that conversation to do this. So what do we do? Well, the pundits say, well, this is good. We're multitasking. But in reality, the human brain doesn't multitask. It toggles. It doesn't do two things at once. So I think we're losing quality with this. I think with our attention spans dropping. Wonderful book by a guy named um, Nicholas Carr called In the Shallows, where he's saying, be very careful we're not watering everything down to seven bullets on a PowerPoint to get the message across, because we still need depth. And this idea with all these platforms bleeping is called continuous partial attention. So I'm sitting with you doing this, but at the same time, I'm thinking, oh, got to email that student or pick up my dry cleaning or something, because your brain can do this. And it's for us to take a breath sometimes and stop. It's, it's challenging us and changing us. Is it hard for um, students to learn in this day and age when, when there's so much skimming and so much, you know, just the headline here yeah. and the, yeah. or the, you know, the tweet? I think so. I think so. When we reduce everything to 140 characters and we think, you know, this is the news I've got. You, you see that every day. This is, you know, just just the tweet or the small piece. And, and is it really enough? So the attention span thing is there. The, the watering down of information to get it imparted. And because, honestly, there's, there's just too much. The statistics about what your great-grandmother would have learned in a year versus what one of our students will learn in a week you know, because they have all these media things. But how do we pick out what we really need? And I think that's the problem for a lot of us. We try to do it all. 
we try to learn everything and know everything and see everything and it's just not possible anymore. Are we filtering for ourselves? Because that's one of the big coping strategies. Well, I also want to ask you what this is doing to our notion of privacy. Mm. Because so much is shared online that a few years ago you wouldn't have spoken of. But it's amazing, it is. isn't it? That, you know, we had the, the COO of Cisco um, the, the tech people, not the frozen people, of Cisco on Lemoyne's campus um, uh, two years ago. And I asked him that question, and he said, what's privacy? I mean, when I was a kid, if I broke up with my boyfriend, I would call my best friend. Now it goes out on Snapchat, and everybody knows, and, and here we are. And and I, I just think, well, and you see that in the media every day. I mean, don't you look and think, why would somebody put that out there? Sure. And, and it, it inhibits other things, too. I mean, we can talk about the joy of our devices and how much we love them, but think about the things that we're missing because of it. Quality time. I mean, that was always a phrase we used to use, right? Mm -hmm. But are you having a real good face-to-face -face conversation if somebody is blipping? Because when your brain shifts somewhere else, it takes several minutes to go back to the same level of concentration and performance than before you interrupt it. So we set ourselves up in working life. There's even now people talking about shallow work versus deep work. Deep work is when you turn your devices off. How much of our work is shallow now? There's so many parts of this. It also has um, conversations um, on it. And when we talk about our devices, I might be with my best friend um, out in Rochester, and we text every night for a little while. I've got no nuance to her voice, right? It's, it's, is there context for the conversation that we're having? Um, blind dates aren't blind dates anymore. I can go stalk somebody and know who they voted for and what they look like and whether or not they're allergic to peanuts. And, you know, that's probably good, but... But still, are we not missing those human moments? I'm afraid we're losing our personal touch. I, I will go back a little while and tell you the very first time that I was, I was doing digital things, I called my grandmother and I said, uh, you know, this is, this is a really interesting way to build community on these digital sites. You know, and this was, this was you know, 15 years ago. And at her point, and I talked about building community. And she said, Renee, you build community by going out the front porch with a pop of tea. And I thought, you know... From the mouths of my great-grandmother. There's something to that. There's something to that cup of tea. So it isn't for anybody to say we want to get away from this stuff, but we sure do want to use it as intended. If all you have is a hammer, what are you doing? Right. Well, I took my iPhone to Apple recently for a repair, and they said they would have to keep it for a matter of hours. Mm -hmm. And the genius told me <laughs> that this doesn't sit well with teens. He said that some of the teens that have come in and needed repairs would rather, you know, cut their arm off than go without their phone for the few hours that's needed. Does that surprise you? It, it doesn't surprise me because of my students. I do want to backtrack though and say that, don't you think it would be a lot of pressure to wear a shirt that says genius on it? When yes. You go to work. Okay, just wait. Um, my, there's actually research saying that there are mental health issues for students whose phones are taken away for younger people, and I'm going to take that right back to parenting. You know, are you allowing phones on at dinner time? One of the biggest indicators of a child's success in school is dinner with their family. Are you talking or are you on your screens? You know, if you can't disconnect for two hours, if you can't disconnect, yeah. Um, it's it's unfortunate because what's going to be lost if you can't disconnect for two hours? What are you going to be missing in those human moments that, that Harvard talks about? Well, are there ways to minimize the anxiety and distress that comes from being unplugged? I think it's a different thing by different generations. This digital generation that was born with a phone in their hand is going to find that very foreign. You know, And it's really a pretty simple thing. Can you ever lead an unplugged life? families can push that to one another that you know we have a cottage up north and for the longest time we had no single signal we played scrabble and monopoly and chess right a different dynamic than playing scrabble on my iphone which i also do every day but it, it's different um and also the other thing that we do as human beings in in working is we don't single task anymore I mean, in the work that you do, you're, you're planning an interview, but you may also be thinking, I, I need to talk to this and that person. So can we focus on one thing? And that becomes more and more challenging. Are you prioritizing well? Do you have to check your Facebook right now? Do you set your computer up to blip when a message is coming in, an email? Now, I remember early email. I'm guessing that you don't. But early email, I mean, you'd get an email and you'd think, oh, wow, somebody wants me. This, I mean, subconsciously, right? This is so cool. And then it turns out to be, you know, my brother-in-law who says, oh, I got a funny joke. Um, but, but we need to, to use it for ourselves and use it as a tool. 
and I think that's what we don't do as well. Well, this has been a very interesting discussion. Thank you for being here. My guest has been Professor Renee Downey-Hart from both Lemoyne College and Syracuse University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Poet Mary Aguelas has published essays and fiction, as well as poetry in a variety of journals, including the Bellevue Literary Review. She lives in Pennsylvania. Her poem, Cancerversary, she takes on cancer with a fighter's poise and power. Cancerversary. I will never use this word, this word that isn't a word, this word that strains to be cute, this word that makes the menacing mundane, this word that is your word. You can't have language. It isn't up for grabs. Stick to livers and lungs, breasts and brains, the habitual haunts that circumscribe your existence. You're good at that. You don't get words. You don't get syllables. And most of all, despite your love of the molecular, you don't get letters. The word is A-N-N-I-V-E-R-S-A-R-Y. You're not invited. been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll explore common genetic abnormalities. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.